All right, we are ending 1 Peter today. So we started 1 Peter, went strong till March 9th, then COVID hit, and <clears throat> then we felt like it was best to take a break, came back to 1 Peter, and uh, so anyway, with means we've gotten 10 months, 9 months to enjoy 1 Peter instead of, uh, instead of the three or four we had originally planned. So uh, good morning to everybody. I was weak. I'm going to have to bring in some Red Bulls, make you guys drink them. Good morning. All right, that's better. Uh, all right, so we're going to be in 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 14. Now, this will overlap some with what Pastor Sean preached last week, um, but he and I agreed the over, a lot of the overlap has to do with humility, which is, which is something we could all use. Uh, it's something that's kind of slippery and hard to get our hands on apart from the Spirit. So, um, so this, this text specifically, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 11, has been more encouraging to me, in my heart, than any other text in the Bible in 2020. So um, the Lord keeps bringing me back here. Uh, earlier in the year, I memorized it. I've been meditating on it. So I was really excited when I saw I was slated to preach a portion of it. Um, so uh, the Lord has used it a lot in my life since January, and just has been encouraging, so I'm excited to talk through it. So uh, I'm going to read 6 through 14, then I'm going to pray, then I'll kind of give you the outline of uh, what we're going to go through today. So uh, the title of the sermon is Humble, Alert, Restore, and Glory. So all of those themes you'll see in this text. Um, so I'm pick up in verse 6 of chapter 5. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your, all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who has likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word. Thank you for it being living, it being active, it being true. Thank you, Lord, that it is sharper than a two-edged sword. I pray as we come to it this morning, Lord, that you help us to have hearts that are humble, that are eager to see your glory, that are eager to see your dominion forever and ever. I pray as we go that you'll help our minds to be free of distractions. Help us not to think about things that may have happened last week or busyness or things that we need to address this week. I just pray that our hearts would be focused on your word right now. I pray you'd use me as, a, as just a jar of clay and that you would get glory. And I pray for this time right now. We, we rebuke Satan away and we pray, Lord, that you would just help us to be clear and have our hearts and our minds fixed on you. In your name, amen. All right, so the, so the plan of what we're going to go through today, I do want to recap verses 1 through 5 briefly, because I think they're a good lead-in to our text here. 
And then uh, we're going to talk about verses 6 and 7, um, which will help us see God's might and his care for us. We'll talk about uh, verses 8 and 9, that we'll talk about um, warnings and suffering. And then we're going to talk about verses um, 10 and 11, which will help us see God's eternal purpose, kind of for the whole the whole letter. Like those, those two verses are kind of the crescendo of where we're going to see where Peter's been leading us to. And then we'll see the closing greetings. There's a lot in the closing greetings. We're going to hit those quickly just because of the time and the amount of stuff we have in the other texts. But that'll be verses 12 through 14. So, backing up to verses 1 through 5, Peter uh, has just given a bunch of instruction for the church. The majority of it directed toward the elders. So, verses 1 to 3 is a lot of instruction for the elders uh, as under-shepherds. So, Christ is the chief shepherd, and and then he appoints under-shepherds under the chief shepherd to um, care for the church. And so, he gives a lot of instructions about Shepherding the flock, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, uh, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering, and then being examples to the flock. And then in verse 5, he um, encourages the whole church, so that's everybody, members, leaders, deacons, elders, uh, ministry leads, everybody in the church, to in humility. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you. So he says, clothe yourselves as a blanket. But then he, he adds in all of you to make sure he's getting everybody, leaders, members, everybody. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the, the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So he knew, Peter knew, it would not be our natural inclination to want to be humble toward each other. He knew we were going to struggle with that. And I think Humility, as I was thinking about this passage this week, humility, I think, is kind of like riding a bull. And if you've ever seen a bull rider, I haven't ever ridden a bull, but if you've ever seen a bull rider, it's kind of controlled chaos. Every time they look like they're steady and they've got it, then the bull whips or bucks in a different direction. And humility is kind of like that. Every time we think we're in a good spot, our pride bucks or, or whips and tries to throw us off. And so he knew it was going to be a struggle for us, and that's why we see humility all through the book. He told us in 3.8, 1 Peter 3.8, that we need to have humble minds toward each other. He tells us in verse 5 very explicitly for all of us to clothe ourselves with humility, and then he's going to launch into verse 6, and, which is our passage today, and tell us to be humble under the mighty hand of God. So as we move to verses 6 and 7 to see God's might and his care for us, Verse 6 says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. So the idea to understand here is that God is very big and weighty. And it's almost like a little ant crawling under, under you know, someone's hand for protection. It's just, God has this big, infinite glory that's meant to weigh on us in a way that is positive, that creates humility and allows us to see God for who he is and see us as small for who we are. And we probably all had times in our lives where we felt small for one reason or another, right? One time in particular that I remember was my freshman year in high school. I played football and I played most of the year that year on our JV team. Now, I'm from a small town in East Texas and football is big. 
It's huge. And so in my town, my hometown of like 5,000 people, if we had a big rivalry game, we could have 1,500 people at, a, at, a, at the game. That's like a third of the population, okay? So that'd be like a third of Raleigh showing up for one of NC State's games or high school game. Uh, so this is a big deal, and um, everybody was really focused on our varsity. And so that year, it was my only year in high school, our varsity team made the playoffs. And so once the varsity team made the playoffs, everybody else who played football existed for them, and whatever you were concerned about didn't matter anymore. So I was on our JV team, and when you're a freshman and you're 14, there's a big difference between a 14-year-old boy and an 18-year-old boy. And so, I mean, there were guys on our, you know, that were seniors on our varsity team that had more hair in their mustache than I probably had on my whole body at that point. So we're out there, and so now our season doesn't matter anymore. Once varsity makes playoffs, then we get to run now as JV scout team. And for those of you who don't know what scout team is, it's basically get destroyed by guys who are bigger and stronger than you. So you exist for uh, their good, and your season doesn't matter anymore. So what we're supposed to do as scout team is emulate the plays that the other teams were going to be running whether it's offense or defense, so our varsity could get used to recognizing those plays and be ready. And so we were, I played receiver, and it didn't matter what position you played, we were all scared to death to go start practicing against the varsity. So the first day we were out there, this guy, uh, Ratliff, we called him Rat, uh, Ratliff got called, and so they ran a pass, they threw it, he caught the ball, as soon as he caught the ball, Somebody from our varsity came and just leveled him. I mean, he went from vertical to horizontal in an instant. And we were, everybody was playing receiver. We all saw it, and we all kind of looked at each other and were wishing that we were injured at that point. And our coach came over to us, and I think he meant to give us one of these inspiring speeches, kind of these win one for the Gipper type speeches. And uh, he was like, see, see what happened to Ratliff? He was like, he got destroyed, he got crushed, and he got up, and he's fine. So don't be afraid when it's your turn. And so this did nothing to reinforce anyone's confidence. So sure enough, uh, it was my turn. And the play, we got, they called a pass play, and I was supposed to run a post route, which means you run upfield uh, for 10 or 15 yards, and then you kind of break at a 45-degree angle, and then the quarterback throws you the ball. So I did that. I ran my route. I broke, and our daggum quarterback threw the ball high. So I'm running. And I have to jump up now to catch it. This is not a good position to be in if you're about to get hit, by the way. So I have to jump up to catch it. I bring it down, and then I brace. And I start to pray. And I'm like, Lord, it's been a good 14 years. Thank you. <laughs> so I brace for the impact. And Vincent Prox, who is our starting safety, this big guy, really fast, I can feel him coming. And he's going to hit me before I hit the ground. Again, if you're going to get hit, it's better to be on the ground than in the air. So I, feel, I brace, and then... He slows up right before he hits me, and he just kind of grabs me like this and then jogs and kind of sets me down. And so I kind of look at him. I don't even remember if I said anything to him or if the look on my face just said, thank you for not, you know, now causing my family to have to plan my funeral. So, but I felt that now if he had destroyed me, I would have known he was much bigger and faster than me. But the way he kind of caught me fully under control and then set me down, I felt this very, like, reverent, like, wow. He's a lot bigger than I am. And, uh, and I was right to be afraid to come out here and catch a pass. And so that's the idea we're supposed to have, is that 
We are small. We don't have anything to offer. And God is big. He's the one that's going to take care of us, that's going to provide for our needs and gently set us down. All right, so I want to move on to verse 7 because he's told us now, be humble under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time he may exalt you. So God's going to exalt us. He's going to make us his children. We're going to be in eternity with him, experiencing his glory. And then he says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, Peter could have given a lot of reasons as to why you cast your anxieties on God. He could have said, cast your anxieties on God because he's sovereign and he's able to change circumstances. He's able to change hearts. He's able to do something about it. But no, that's not what he said. He could have said, cast your anxieties on God because he'll hear you. He just said in 1 Peter 3.12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. So he could have said, cast your anxieties on God because he'll hear you. He'll listen to you. But no, he didn't say that either. And then he could have said, cast your anxieties on the Lord because he can work all things together for good. Paul told us in Romans 8, 28, that God is able to take all circumstances and he's able to make them, he's able, in his beautiful sovereignty, he's able to take terrible circumstances and work them somehow for your good. But Peter doesn't say that either. So Peter doesn't say, cast your anxiety on God because he's able to do something about them or he'll hear you or he'll work it out for your good. All of those are true. Yes and amen, they're true. But he says, cast your anxieties on God because he cares for you. He cares for your soul. He cares for your heart. And so Peter wants us to know that God cares for our well-being. There are times where I'm really burdened about things, or I'm really stressed out about things, and I go and I share my heart with, with somebody. And often it's Robin, my wife, because we're, we're, I'm closer to her than anyone else. And so I go, not because she can fix things, not because she's going to have a solution, but I know she'll listen to me, I know she loves me, and I know she'll hear me. And it makes my heart feel better. And we all have people that like that in our lives, whether it's a sibling or a close friend or a spouse or a parent. We all have somebody that you can go to when you're really upset about something, when you're really burdened about something, when something is really heavy on your heart, and you can go and you know it's a safe place you can go share your heart with that person. And that's what Peter is saying here. So whoever it is you're picturing in your mind, you can cast your anxieties on God because he cares for you. So when you share with that person and you feel comforted, that's just a a mist in the hurricane of God's love for you. And so you can go to him because he cares more deeply for your soul than you can even understand. So pour your heart heart out to him. He cares. All right, we're going to move on to verses 8 and 9 where we'll see warnings and we'll see suffering. So verse 8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So right after Peter has given us this beautiful set of verses where he says to humble ourselves under God, his might and his weight will cover us. And then he says, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He cares about your heart and your soul. He says, be sober-minded, be alert. So why why would he kind of abruptly transition from how we're supposed to relate to God and how God cares for us to be sober-minded, be alert. 
And he said this earlier. Uh, Pastor Sean did a great job preaching uh, 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. Verse 7 says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Pastor Sean did a great job talking about that self-control and that sober-mindedness. It's got to be, what Peter means there is it's laced with humility. So you're going in because um, you know you can't help yourself. You're going in with the humility. And God, that allows your, the fog of your mind, the fog of sin to be lifted so that you can see things as they are, that you can have really true understanding. You can have a right understanding of what's happening in the world, what's happening in your life. And so um, Peter wants us to remember that right after we commune with God, right after we have these intimate moments with God, Satan hates that. He hates our intimacy with God. He hates our love with God. He hates God's care for us. He's going to come and he's going to try to tempt you to fall. And so when you've had those moments, when you've had that intimate intimacy with Christ, we need to be alert and we need to be sober-minded because that's often when we're vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. And what does he compare our enemy to? He said he's like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, I don't have a lot of experiences with lions, but there is one that stands out in my mind. I was 21, and I went on a retreat with some other people that I was friends with, and uh, we went to this retreat center. It was out in the middle of nowhere, and they had uh, um, like a, a house with, you know, kind of cabin rooms in it, and then it was kind of like a zoo, too. So they had buffalo, they had a couple bears, they had a tiger, they had a rhinoceros, they had a camel, and they had a lion. And so some of the, like the camel and the buffalo were just kind of out, but like the bears and the lions and the tiger were in cages, thankfully, right? So you could walk around and kind of see these things. So the first day we were there, kind of walking around, getting the lay of the land. And then we had dinner, and we came outside for kind of a planned devotional time, and it was around dusk. And uh, like I said, I was around 21, so I was more tempted to think that I was tough and invincible uh, unlike now as a, as a middle-aged man with a broken-down body. I don't have those temptations as much anymore. But we're all out there, uh, young, and, you know, thinking that uh, we were cool. And in the middle of our kind of devotion time, the lion starts roaring. Now, it was probably a few hundred yards away from us, but it didn't matter. It was deep, and it was loud. And I don't know if he roared for like two minutes or five minutes or ten minutes, but it felt like an eternity. He's roaring this deep, loud roar. And everybody stopped talking, and everybody kind of started looking at each other. And we all, they all had the same look on their face that I had on my face, was this look of like fear mixed with awe, of like, that is raw power. If we were put in the cage with that intense beast one-on-one, it's over. No hope. We're done. Right? You could just feel the roar of the lion that... You had that you were helpless kind of in front of this. Now, what does the text say? It says the devil is like a lion. It does not say he is a lion. Jesus is the lion of Judah. He is the one that took our sin and took our blame on his back and rose from the dead and conquered sin and Satan and death for eternity. So Satan may be like a lion. He may be walking around trying to get us to fall, but he has been permanently and eternally defeated by the lion, the lion of Judah, Jesus. So we need to remember his wickedness, and we need to be on guard, but we don't need to be without hope. 
because he has been defeated, and he's been defeated by the one who has saved us. So if we go on into verse 9, he tells us to be aware, because our adversary the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Then what does he say? He says, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So what does Peter want us to do in light of knowing there's an enemy out there who wants to tear us to shreds? He says to resist him firm in our faith. He does not say resist him in your own strength. Do not train and become uh, strong on your own. Do not dig down into your own willpower and think that you have what, you, what it takes, what you, can, what you can muster up to overcome Satan. He says resist him firm in the faith because it's Jesus who has the power and not us. And so we're to stand firm in Jesus because we have no ability on our own apart from the Spirit. But by the Spirit, we've been given everything pertaining to godliness. And so he says, resist him firm in your faith. And then he says, remember, this is normal. So I also thought Eric Sisson did a great job on his First Peter 4 sermon where he reminded us that suffering is not abnormal. Suffering is not something where you have been singled out by God. It's normal for the Christian life that we will suffer. Whether it's suffering physically, whether it's suffering oppression from outsiders, there will be trials that happen in this life. I was so thankful uh, with Pastor Travis leading us well to pray for those who are persecuted. In particular, even in this year, even in this last 12 months with our missionaries, we have three missionaries that are on the field, uh, another couple that's praying and, and been trained and ready to go. And I'm not going to mention their names just for security reasons, but two of those three, after being in their home countries for more than 10 years, were forced to leave in the last year. And the Lord was using them in mighty ways. One, to translate the Bible into a, a tongue that doesn't have it. And the other one, as a uh, uh, seminary professor, to train young pastors in that country. And so they're still working outside of the country to both of those ends. But there's, you know, there's suffering. They've had to uproot their whole families and the lives that they've known for uh, over a decade and, you know, relocate and still try to minister across borders. So... You know, we think that this week you have the prayer sheet from Pastor Travis. Uh, if you know who our missionaries are, you can pray for them. They need, they're suffering. They're going through things. So we need to lift them up. And we need to remember that God hasn't singled us out. He hasn't forgotten about us. However hard or whatever suffering you may be going through, he is going to, through his purity and his righteousness and his wise judgment, he's going to take that and somehow work it for his glory. And he's going to, he's going to use it for your good. And then that's where Peter goes next, is he's saying, we have, to be, we have to be humble, we have to be alert, we have to remember to bear with each other. Why? Verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, again, it's temporary, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So this is the crescendo of the, whole, of the whole letter, the whole five chapters. So there's so much through 1 Peter about humility. There's so much through 1 Peter about loving each other, caring for each other. There's so much through about being alert and sober-minded and resisting the enemy. Why? Because it's all for the glory of God. And so there are going to be days that feel long. There's going to be suffering 
that feels like every day is a slog through the mud. There's going to be times where you wonder what's going on and what is God doing. But we've got to remember that God's grace is so amazing that he can take our sinfulness and the sinful brokenness of this world without violating his righteousness, and he can use it for his beauty and his glory. He doesn't, he's not one who uh, just overlooks it or says it's not a big deal or takes a bribe and turns the other way. He's one who bore it on himself and through his resurrecting from the dead, conquered and brought righteousness to all of us. And then he uses four words that are somewhat synonyms to encourage us because he wants us to remember we're going to get to enjoy this eternal party with joy unspeakable and beauty unseen and reveling in Jesus and the glory of God. And so he says, God's going to restore you. He's going to restore us. You don't restore things that are in mint condition. You don't buy a brand new car at a dealership and drive it to a mechanic and ask him to restore it. You restore wrecked cars. You restore uh, old furniture. You restore dilapidated houses. You have to restore things that are not in their right condition. And so I found some pictures online of some cars. So this is before and after. We're only going to look at two. The first one, that car doesn't even run. It's strapped down to a trailer. And then it doesn't even look the same in the second one. Uh, let's go to the next one. So this is a kind of a muscle car from the 70s. There's no way I have the vision if I see that piece of junk sitting in a, in a junkyard that it could be restored to the one in the bottom. So God's going to come to us in our broken state, and he's going to bring restoration. He's going to put us as we were meant to be, or shalom is, is the, uh, the old Jewish way. He's going to restore peace. He's going to put things as they were meant to be. And then he says he's going to confirm us. So we know that we're children of God because of our faith. We know we've been adopted into God's family as his sons and daughters because of what the New Testament tells us. But Paul also tells us that in this life, in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith because we don't have sight yet. But there's going to come a time when our faith leads us to being able to see God for who he is and being able to see his kingdom for what it is. And he's going to confirm our place with him next to him for eternity. And then it says he's going to strengthen us. So in this life, we're weak. We're weak in a variety of ways. Um, we're still in a world that's groaning under the pains of childbirth. So we're still in a world that's cursed by sin, which creates varied kinds, varied kinds of different weaknesses, whether it's a position of uh, a positional weakness where somebody has power over you, uh, or whether it's a, a weakness of sickness. So we see people struggle with um, you know, various kinds of sicknesses that will weaken their body. But Karen Jobs has an encouraging word for us that even though we're weak in this life, regardless of how we're weak, she says this in her commentary about this word strengthen in, in 1 Peter 5. God himself will empower you. In any society that gets away with persecuting Christ's followers, Christians are truly in a position of weakness. But the time will come when Christ is revealed as the true Lord of the earth and the believer's faith in him will be vindicated. We will end up in a position of power because we are his children. And it will not be oppressive power. It will be power that's made perfect through his righteousness. And then finally, he's going to establish us. And the idea here is like establishing the foundation of a house. 
So Jesus is the chief cornerstone in God's kingdom, and we are in that foundation with him as his children. So he's going to forever establish us in his kingdom. There's not going to be any more roaming around. There's not going to be any more longing for home. There's not going to be any more anxiety of wishing things were different. We're going to, we're going to come into his kingdom, and you're going to be able to drop your shoulders and exhale and feel the feeling of being home, truly home for the first time. And the feeling is going to be so overwhelming and intense, you're going to realize the longings that you had fell far short of what the reality is going to be. It's going to feel like home immediately because we're going to be free from the bondage of sin and we're going to be able to see with our eyes the glory of Jesus for eternity. And then Peter drives it home even more. So God is glorious. He's called us because he's the God of all grace. All grace is rooted in God. He's called us as the God of all grace to the eternal glory in Christ. Why? Because he has dominion forever and ever and ever. So why is he going to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us? Because of his eternal glory that we will be able to participate in. And so this is our greatest purpose. This is why we were created, which is to revel in the beauty of Jesus, to spend eternity free in his perfection that will not be corrupted. And we'll get to witness it forever and ever. And our souls will finally be able to praise and have deep, soul satisfaction because of his forever dominion. Then he closes with some, uh, a lot of things. Like I said, we could probably make a whole, a whole sermon out of his closings. But um, there's some good things in these verses that I just want to hit quickly. So he says, By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. So Sylvanus is a, is a representative and charged with taking this letter to the audience. So he's charged with taking it to the Christians uh, in the Roman world, in this part of the Roman world, a lot of whom are under persecution because Rome was very anti-Christian at this point. And so he, uh, Sylvanus may have helped just uh, be the deliverer of the letter. He may have, Peter may have dictated the letter and he may have written it down, or he may have helped Peter write the letter. We don't know, but we know there was a close relationship. He's a trusted brother in charge with taking the truth out. And he says, um, so he's written this letter exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So he doesn't want them to doubt it. This is the true grace of God. That's the reason he wrote the letter, because it's true, and he wants them to stand firm in it. The same way he just said in verse 9, resist him firm in your faith. He wants us to be firm in our faith. And then he says, um, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Babylon is taken there by most scholars to mean Rome, because the ancient Babylon had long been fallen and abandoned. Rome was the greatest empire at that time in the world. So there are believers in Rome. Even though Rome is in some ways wanting to target and persecute Christians, God is still raising up his church inside of her. Um, much like we pray for many countries today where the gospel is, they're trying to root out the gospel. We pray that it will continue to flourish and spread. And then he says, um, and so does my son, Mark. Mark here is meant to, um, to, for us to understand, it's Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark. And Peter and Mark had a close relationship. Some have compared it to what Paul and Timothy were like, um, kind of a father-son in the gospel. And he says, uh, greet one another with a, with a kiss of love. Now, the, what he means there is um, we're to have a familial 
love and affection and care for each other. Just like in verse uh, chapter 4, 8, he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. We're supposed to have this idea that we're, we're family, we have affection for each other, we have love for each other, we have a commitment to each other. Yes, we're under the curse of sin, so there are going to be times we hurt each other, times we let each other down, but we've got to have enough affection for each other in the gospel to overlook those things, to forgive and to move forward. Um, an interesting side note, when I was thinking about, when I graduated from college, I was thinking about going to um, be a, a missionary for two years, and the Lord closed some doors, so it didn't work out. But one of the places I was looking at was uh, Ukraine, and there was a guy I knew who was a missionary at the time there named Mick, and um, we were talking about some of the details, and he was telling me that in the church there, they had been under communism for 100 years, and before that, they were Russian Orthodox for about 900 years. So the church, when communism was gone, had tried to, to go back and kind of resurrect itself but unfortunately, a lot of the church had fallen into legalism. And so the, the brothers there actually kissed each other on the lips when they saw each other at church. And uh, this is a big red flag for me. I was trying to figure out if I could make this work or not. And I was like, Mick, how do you, how do you, di-? and he was this big kind of macho manly. I was like, how do you, how do you, you kiss all these guys on the lips? He was like, the, the way you do with it, the best defense is a good offense. When I see them coming, I grab their face and I do it quick and get it over with. And uh, I was like, wow, that's so this is meant to be uh, a familial affection, so don't come up and try to kiss me at the end. It's very anti, anti-COVID. Um, so we're meant to have a love and affection for each other. And then he says, he ends it with peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is exactly how he started the letter. If you look at 1 Peter 1, 2, he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So we who are in Christ have true peace. And may it increase and abound in our hearts and in our fellowship. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that um, you are faithful to your word. We may be um, faithless. We may struggle. We may fail, but you do not. And you are our Savior. You have redeemed us. When we are tempted to listen to the lies of the enemy, when we're tempted to feel like we have blown it, when we are tempted to feel like we are small or, or uh, we don't matter, Lord, I pray that we will rebuke those thoughts and we'll come to passages like this and remember that we do matter because we are sons and daughters of the King, and we will spend eternity, Lord, glorifying you, and we'll spend eternity being healed, being restored, being confirmed, being strengthened, being established, and I pray, Lord, as we go out this week, that we would go out believing that you're going to use us in a dark world as our culture in many ways tries to um, preach messages that are contrary to this, Lord. I pray that we would see those as opportunities to shed your light and, and have faith that you will bring conversions, you'll bring disciples, and that you'll make your name great. In your name, amen.